You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the latest issues affecting human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Gabriel Stein. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights in Lund, Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're speaking to James A. Goldston. He's the executive director of the Open Society Justice Initiative and a leading practitioner of international human rights and criminal law. He's litigated cases before the European Court of Human Rights and United Nations treaty bodies, including on issues of counterterrorism, racial discrimination, and torture. James Goldston, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. You're the executive director of the Open Society Justice Initiative. Correct. Can uh, you tell me what you do? Open Society Foundations is a global foundation um, founded and funded by George Soros. And the Open Society Justice Initiative is a public interest law and human rights center based inside the foundation that is engaging with the partners and grantees of the rest of the foundation to promote the rule of law around the world. And we do that by legal action. We go into court, national courts and regional courts, to fight for human rights. We engage in research on the various issues we work on, and we engage in advocacy and provide technical assistance both to governments and civil society. So I understand you've been at this game for a while. Um, I imagine you could have never imagined we would be where we are today. What mistakes do you think have been made on a general level (laughs) among uh, practitioners of international human rights and, and criminal law? Have they made mistakes? Or, to put it a different way, what can, they, what can be done to improve the way they work? I think it's important to step back and acknowledge that we are in a different time than we were certainly when the Open Society Justice Initiative was formed in 2003, and uh, certainly when George Soros was beginning these foundations, um, you know, 10, 15 years before that. You know, when the Berlin Wall was coming down and new democracies were emerging in Central and Eastern Europe, what had been behind the Iron Curtain, there was a huge sense of optimism, hope. And there was a sense, at least among many people, I think, that um, in many parts of the world, that um, we were on a trajectory and a trajectory leading to more openness, more rights protection, more democracy and free and fair elections for people. And uh, there were obstacles, there were problems, but I think people generally felt like the world was heading in the right direction. I don't think we have that sense today. Clearly, over the last several years, we have seen emerge um, in country after country leadership that is taking us uh, the wrong way, leadership that is capitalizing on frustration, genuine frustration, um, genuine suffering, a genuine sense that uh, the world um, is spinning beyond and changing beyond people's ability to control it and that people have lost, a lot of people have lost control of their lives and can't be treated with dignity and have a a decent job and a decent way of life. The question is, for the human rights movement, I think this change has created a number of challenges and certainly there are questions that are being raised about, hey, did you as a movement, did rights actors fail to address issues around economic inequality? that have now emerged so so prominently in many places? And I think the answer uh, to some extent is yes. I think um, certainly um, some human rights organizations perhaps have not given adequate attention to issues of um, economic and social suffering and social justice more generally. But I want to say a couple of things about that, if I may. I think, first of all, that's an 
overdrawn criticism. I think that applies to some parts of the human rights movement, by no means all. Uh, human rights movement organizations, particularly in the global south, uh, in Africa, in Latin America, in parts of Asia, have for years been developing innovative approaches to address very severe uh, economic problems that people uh, are having. Um, and even at the global level, I think the fact that the new generation of sustainable development goals include elements of justice and, and, uh, and the rule of law and therefore integrate issues of economic development with justice issues is a promise and a recognition that these issues are related and do have something to do with one another. But nonetheless, it's true that, that there's more to be done, I think. Going forward, I think the rights movement uh, increasingly uh, is transitioning, and I hope this continues, from a sense of crisis to a sense of opportunity. I think what we see in this world today, uh, the challenges that, that illiberal movements and illiberal leaders pose to human rights is a moment of reckoning for many. And I think it's a, it's a moment for self-reflection, perhaps on strategies that we might have pursued or things we've overlooked, and a moment of genuine possibility for us to reimagine what the human rights movement can be, how it can relate to not just the grand architecture and the formal laws and institutions which are created, and are important, but also to how people experience rights in practice or the absence of rights in practice. And I think that increasing attention to the connection between the formal laws and institutions and the condition of people on the ground is where parts of the human rights movement are headed. And I think that's a positive thing. Do you think the movement is capable of, of addressing that aspect, which you're talking about now? You have companies with massive amounts of money who are spending so much capital on messaging, public relations, you know, massive understanding about how people think, how they shop. You tend to have human rights movement, which doesn't look at communication and the word marketing <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a positive light. And it seems to be like they, they lose out against these other messaging and, and, and the more simple messaging. Do you, do you see any specific movements out there doing a good job at this? And, and do you think the movement's capable of doing what you just said? Absolutely. I think, um, I, I don't think it's easy. I think it requires new imaginative thinking, new creativity. But I do see examples from Brazil to South Africa to to Southeast Asia, um, even to countries in Europe and North America, um, where movements have been applying new approaches in an effort to um, bridge the gap between human rights law and the reality of people's lives. And I think we see this in a number of ways. On the one hand, we're seeing human rights actors increasingly uh, recognize that the language of law is important but insufficient, and that increasingly in the past, uh, some of us, and I put myself in this as well, have had a tendency to kind of speak in a jargon, assuming that everybody kind of remembers and understands why human rights were created, what human rights in instruments, conventions mean uh, when a court rules automatically, therefore, of course, that decision will be implemented, etc., mm -hmm. etc., et which is insufficient, right? And I think increasingly we've recognized that we need to speak in the language that everybody uses in their ordinary lives and help people remember what the origin of rights are, what's the practical purpose that they serve. And um, I think we're seeing tools in that regard in the way organizations use communications, in the way they use social media, in the way they integrate litigation with other tools of change. There's a vast movement of legal empowerment around the world that is aimed precisely 
at trying to help ordinary people gain more agency in their lives, the ability to control their lives by using legal information and legal tools, not relying on lawyers or others, but connecting to formal institutions and justice institutions so that they serve their interests. I think those kinds of movements are very powerful. That being said, I think it would be a mistake to put the entire burden of readjustment to what we're facing today on the human rights movement. The struggle for social justice and uh, greater economic opportunity and equality is a struggle that certainly has elements of rights to it. Rights arguments and rights tools are important in that struggle, but they're by no means the exclusive tools by which social justice and economic equality and opportunity will be secured. Those are fundamentally political struggles, and I think we have to recognize that part of what is required is our political changes as well grassroots movements, labor movements, political parties, all of these elements are playing a role here. And human rights actors increasingly, I think, will help to make rights more relevant again by working with actors outside the human rights movement um, to bring about their shared progressive values. It's interesting what you, what you talk about because um, even simple things like um, rule of law or illiberal democracy, I mean, these terms, they mean a lot to those who know. But even rule of law, we take it for granted that people know what that is. Absolutely right. Ultimately, we're talking about the law applies equally to everybody. Mm -hmm. Nobody is above the law from a common person to the king, the president, whoever they may be. And I think people can understand that if the law is applied fairly and equally, that's, that's a fundamental value that they can relate to. So I agree with you completely. We need to move beyond the lexicon um, that is so the language that is so um, comfortable for many legally um, rooted rights actors to a language that speaks to people's ordinary needs. And what about the um, people just say that the human rights movement is just a bunch of lefties? I mean, even in Sweden now, increasingly, you get this. We're involved in organizing uh, the Swedish Human Rights Forum um, with a number of other organizations. It's the biggest forum on human rights in the Nordics. and. Pretty much every year we get criticism that oh, this is a bunch of lefties talking about human rights. And so it's really, you really get pigeonholed into that. Do you, do you see any way out of that going forward? That goes back to what you were talking about when it comes to the politics. I mean, how do you mainstream it to the other political parties? I think one of the challenges with human rights is to reconcile two competing ideas, which are to some extent intention. On the one hand, rights derive their power from the fact that they are meant to transcend partisan politics. But at the same time, as we see in the real world today, human rights values are intimately linked to political struggles. And fighting for human rights is a political struggle. So I think maintaining the myth, but to some extent reality, of rights as a, as a non-political tool while recognizing that the struggle for rights is a political struggle, that's a hard thing to do. I think ultimately human rights serve everyone. And it goes back to the question of can we translate these formal laws and institutions into people's everyday needs. I think ultimately if we do that successfully, we get beyond the partisanship of different political movements or political parties to kind of get out of the box of, oh, rights are on this side or that side of the spectrum. In certain contexts, of course, human rights will be joined up by political struggles on one side or another of the spectrum. But I can say, you know, one issue in particular, it seems to me that going forward, is an issue that spans the divide and is of great relevance to human rights, and that's the issue of corruption. 
happened. I think people across political divide in many societies around the world feel rightly that they are the victims of a political and or economic elite that is stealing from them. And I think that widely held sentiment is a sentiment that the human rights movement has something to say to and, and to help with. And I think the more the human rights movement tries to do that, the more successfully they will be able to uh, appeal to people on all sides of the political divide. It's interesting. Maybe that's why some of the people who voted for Donald Trump also would have voted for Bernie Sanders. The frustration that people feel can be um, channeled in many, many different directions. But I think we are certainly seeing that people are kind of fed up with stock answers and rhetoric that is never translated into something real that they can actually feel. Unfortunately, a vacuum has been left in political circles in a lot of country that has been filled by political leaders who um, really are about their own interests and not about the interests of the people they serve. They're offering very easy answers that actually don't mean very much and may be entirely false. The answer to that, as we're seeing in different countries, I think, is organization, is education, is mobilization. You know, I think I think we're going to see more and more of that, and the rights movement has a role to play in contributing to that. We uh, we do education and research all around the world, um, and, and work with a lot of young people, whether it's you know uh, young disadvantaged women from Cambodia or students at our master's program here at, at Boone University. What would you say to someone who's getting into the field? Words of encouragement, but also advice. I would say get ready for the challenge of your life. Human rights movement, the human rights field is an incredibly dynamic, often frustrating, and often rewarding place to work. I think the, the key is um, for people to be open to, uh, to change and find ways increasingly of translating whatever they're learning uh, in school and in their institutions into what is happening on the ground where they're working. And I think one of the ways to do that is by listening. My colleagues are increasingly skilled at simply when working with people, listening to what people say are their needs, are ways that they can, uh, that we can help them. I think increasingly agency in the human rights movement is moving as it should be from the what have been traditionally the power centers of New York and Washington and Brussels, etc., to places that are far more geographically diverse around the world. And that's an exciting prospect for the human rights movement. And for somebody coming into the field, I think increasingly recognizing and appreciating and making valuable the diversity of the human rights movement is, uh, is something that, uh, that is highly attractive. You write that in an increasingly authoritarian world, courts are among the few spaces where power may be challenged, dissent voiced, and independent scrutiny applied. Can you elaborate on that? In a number of countries, political space is closing and dissent on the street, in media, is less and less possible. Courtrooms are formal institutions that are protected to some extent by the authority of the judges themselves, by the authority of the notion of uh, judicial independence and the rule of law, which at a minimum many political leaders feel like they need to pay lip service to. So courts often offer the prospect of airing grievance um, and, uh, and projecting voices uh, of dissent from official policy 
that other spaces may not um, in an increasingly intolerant world. And I think, you know, whether whether cases win, what the impact of judicial decisions is, those are all challenges, absolutely. But I think we're increasingly seeing that the courtroom can be a place that is harder for illiberal elements to interfere with. Now, an example of that, I would think, is, you know, what we've seen in the challenges to the Trump administration's persistent efforts to reduce, if not ban, immigration from certain countries. Not all of the legal efforts have been successful um, in, in, in legal terms, but I think they have been relatively successful in uh, offering a space for a very prominent contest to the kinds of ideas that this anti-immigration rhetoric and these anti-immigration policies seek to foster. And they have also served as fora for people to mobilize around in saying, hey, we are actually um, a diverse population. We, are an, we want an open society. We are a welcoming society. And we recognize that immigration um, offers all kinds of advantages to those of us in the United States um, who are obviously ourselves are the descendants of immigrants. So I think we've seen that courtrooms offer many opportunities for human rights mobilization well beyond the simple argument before judges. You've litigated several cases before the European Court of Human Rights and the UN Treaty Bodies through your career. Which one of those was your favorite or most interesting? I think perhaps um, one of the cases that I found most rewarding was the case on behalf of Khaled al-Masri, who, of course, was uh, the uh, German national who was mistaken by the CIA to, uh, to be a terrorist and was um, held in incommunicado detention in um, Skopje, Macedonia for several weeks and then shipped off to the Salt Pit, a CIA prison outside of Kabul in Afghanistan for several months before the United States authorities recognized that they had made a pure and simple mistake and reverse rendered him back to the hills of Albania without any formal acknowledgement, apology, or compensation. And their efforts to um, seek legal redress in the United States were unsuccessful because of a doctrine that called state secrets that uh, prevents a legal action from going forward where classified information would be disclosed. And we therefore went to the European Court of Human Rights to air the issues around the question of Macedonia's role in this process. And that was uh, an opportunity for an authoritative court like the European Court of Human Rights to raise attention to the horrific abuses that the CIA and a collaborating European government engaged in, from extraordinary rendition to torture to incommunicado detention and forced disappearance in gross violation of fundamental human rights norms. Um, This was part of a series of cases that has recognized increasingly that what the um, Bush administration uh, did in the aftermath of 9-11 was um, a breach of fundamental human rights and a senseless policy, frankly, uh, despite everything that candidate Donald Trump said about returning to torture and returning to waterboarding, uh, we haven't as yet seen that happen. And my hope and expectation is that rulings like that of the European Court of Human Rights in the Almasri case are one reason why. James Goldson, the Executive Director of the Open Society Justice Initiative. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
on Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. <laughs>